great congregation and one great choir together this morning, and I appreciate that so much. Uh, For those of you who are visiting here for the first time, maybe you've been invited just because it's after Christmas and it's kind of the Christmas weekend. We're so glad for you to be here. We want to reach out to you. For those of you that uh, have any needs, let me just say right at the outset that we have pastors, and I'll be up front, that are available for you. We have female counselors that are available available for you. If you have prayer needs, if you have any spiritual needs, if you'd like to become part of Anchorage Grace Church, we would love to have you be part of our flock. If you notice in the bulletin, there are many different venues for you to fellowship and connect with people. We have men's groups, women's groups, we have home groups. Please avail yourself of all of that information in the sort of trifold bulletin. Look at what's going on, where you can plug in. And we want to fill your hearts with encouragement and hope and be the body of Christ to you. Um, well, thinking of that and having that in mind, this time I'd like for you to stand on your, at your feet and turn around and greet each other in the Lord and find someone that you haven't met ever before. Well, all right, let's take our seats again and gather up your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, this is actually a part 2 to what was preached last week in Philippians 2 on the humility of Christ. This morning, sort of to continue to focus on Christ and to put Him preeminent in our thinking, I want to focus on Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation. After the aftermath of Christmas and all of the gift giving and, you know, perhaps, perhaps you have a little bit of the Christmas blues sort of post all the sugar high and all of the, the fanfare of Christmas. Maybe you've seen family and had to say goodbye to some family members, putting them back up on a plane. I want to encourage your heart this morning from Philippians chapter 2, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let me read, though, in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5, because we're going to first descend with Christ again and see him in his humility and watch it crescendo up through verse 11. Follow as I read. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So... That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, more than anything else, these last verses that I've just read are New Testament prophecy. These verses guarantee that one day, everyone, every rational, volitional creature will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. It is utterly inevitable, the scripture says. All will collectively yield and all will confess the lordship of Christ. Every created being from every age that has the capacity to do so will, either by glad confession or by forced submission, there will be a confession that Jesus is Lord. It's as sure as it happened in ages ago when Christ first came as the Christ child and the angels worshipped God, and the shepherds bowed before him, and the wise men bowed before him and worshipped him at first advent, at his first coming. At his second coming, all of the universe will do so in kind. It's an inescapable fact, and this really stood out to me on Thursday of this week. Thursday of this week, I was sitting in Starbucks off of Diamond in the corner, tucked away, reading as fast and furiously and feverishly as I could because I wanted to be done for Sunday morning so that I could play with the kids Christmas Eve and yesterday. And so I was reading really hard and working hard for Sunday. And someone came up to get their coffee at the little stand there where the barista hands it over, and that person, this guy, kind of noticed this stack of books on my table that had become my little library cubicle and he just began to strike up conversation with me about that. It could be a dangerous thing to do when I'm studying the Bible this intensely and thinking about Christ, especially if you don't know him yet. And so he starts to talk to me and, hey, what are those books? That's really great. You like to read? And I'm a little light reading here. And so we started connecting about the fact that we both have 11-year-old daughters. And so we're talking along and he's saying how valuable it is to have your children read and I'm agreeing with him and all of a sudden I'm prompted in my heart with some guilt because I realized that I'd been so busy that I had forgotten or neglected to invite anyone so far to the Christmas Eve service. You remember that challenge from last week? So I'm living this out. I'm sitting here going, man, you know, I got to follow through and invite this guy to come. And I'm thinking, this is by design. He's going to melt. We're going to have this sweet experience. And so I just said, well, I, you know, by the way, I'm the senior pastor from Anchorage Grace Church. And I would love for you to come to the Christmas Eve service. It starts at 6 o'clock. It's this Friday. You would have thought he had seen a ghost. Seven feet of distance all of a sudden spanned himself and myself at the table. He was, he was backing away from me. It was freakish. I thought, what did I say? What have I done? Well, anyway, I realized that this man wanted to make every excuse all of a sudden to reject everything that I was telling him, especially anything at all about Christ. He began to plead his case for 
why he didn't need to know God. I mean, I wasn't even going there. I just said Christmas Eve service. I said, it's something you can come to. And he said, well, you know, let me just say that I've got some distance between me and him. And I've got, you know, my book that I've read. And I assume he was referring to the Bible. But he's saying it's at my bed, bed table, bedside table. It's sort of in the drawer, tucked away. And it's, I've worked through that and read that. And I'm going to, you know, and at this point, he is, he's like, down the way, he's, he's walking away, talking back to me and saying, you know, I'm going to deal with him one day, probably, you know, at the very end. And here I am reading these verses, that there's going to come a day when for certain he will deal with the Lord or be dealt with by the Lord. It is inevitable that he will come face to face with Christ, but He thinks on his terms, but he's going to come on God's terms. It just stood out to me that that this is an, an inevitability for everyone. That we will all bow, we will all yield, and we will all confess. Either in faith on this side of eternity, or one day by force on the other side. Right? It's inevitable. We, we dare not take this prophecy lightly. This is holy ground. It's not if he'll face God, it's when he'll face God. It's not if you'll face God, it's when you will face God and confess him as Lord. And so, just to sort of unpackage Philippians 2, follow this outline. This is, this is based on Christ's humility. Christ's humility, it's sealed for himself. It's sealed for Christ Three expressions of glory. And verses 9 through 11 unfold these these expressions of glory that are going to happen one day, okay? We're going to look at three expressions of glory. And because Jesus descended in humility, it's sealed or it guarantees the prophecy of these three expressions of glory. And here's the first expression. The first expression of glory to Christ is by way of coronation, and that's verse 9, a crowning service that's given to Christ by his Father. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Let's stop there. This is a beautiful display of God the Father's love for the Son. By the way, is this your God? Is is Paul's God your God? I mean, think about this. This is not out of character for God. You, You think sometimes of God as just this holy being that's sort of totally untouchable and insensitive and without feeling, but but this is this is Christ who came and he is God and he's, he's humbling himself in self-sacrificial love and then he dies on the cross and then he comes back up to heaven and then the father says, oh, I want to esteem you and love you and coronate you and crown you as Lord. Is that your God? A God that is like that? What an expression of, of real deity that we get to see because Paul wrote this down for us. The word in Verse 9 that stands out is, therefore, this is a transition point in the text where it's linking verses 5 through 8 to 9 through 11. It's a swivel point. It's where, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore, he is to be coronated 
or crowned as Lord. This was inevitable because Christ humbled himself axiomatically or by universal principle. He was going to be crowned. And this already has happened. There's kind of a first coronation. And then there's a part two to this service that ultimately is going to happen where we're all going to join in. John 17 speaks of of this, where Jesus was praying to the Father before he went to the cross. Do you remember it? In his high priestly prayer, he had just poured his heart out to his disciples, and then probably right outside of the Garden of Gethsemane time, he bows to the Father and he says in John 17, 1, says, Father, the hour has come. In other words, the cross is before me. I'm going to die. Now glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I bring this verse up just to say that Glory was expected for Christ. Christ expected it for himself. He knew the Father was going to glorify him. Why? Because he was already glorified before he came to earth. He was God. He is God and forever will be God deserving glory. But this was a pinnacle expression, sort of a a reward scenario because Christ had become obedient as a servant dying on the cross. Christ didn't earn this coronation service. He proved himself to be worthy of it, though, because he followed through in humility, first and foremost. And it's the same for us. Really, one day we expect glory even for ourselves, don't we? We are going to reign with Christ. Now, we're going to give glory to Christ, but we're going to experience and taste and enjoy the glory of Christ together as one family. And the reason we expect this is because we know that we are authentically his children now. I mean, the Bible proves this out. Matthew 23 is where Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Then it says in verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Whoever is authentically a Christian here on earth, like Christ in his humility, should expect that there will be exaltation in heaven. It's axiomatic. First, first Peter 5, 6, same thing. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he will or he may exalt you. Well, Philippians 9 again, look there. This is the turning point. Again, linking Christ's humility to Christ's exaltation or his coronation service. And it all began with his humility, just to look back at the verses 5 through 6, 5 through uh, 8, if you look at verse 6, it says that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. That, that is just the idea that Christ was always God, but he became fully man and his glory was veiled in flesh and he took on the form of a servant. I was thinking of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and how humble that was for him to come as a little baby. It's one thing to grow and be fully man and God, but to think of him as fully God and baby, infant, completely helpless, 
completely dependent upon his mother for sustenance, for life, to be clothed, to be fed. That was humility. That was Christ's choice. He humbled himself. He was obedient, though, as a full-grown man to die as a servant on the cross on your behalf, veiled in flesh, born to die. And he died in such a horrible way. I just want to mention this real quickly. He died by way of execution. Do you grasp that? I think, I think sometimes because in modern times we don't use a cross to execute criminals, we don't equate the sort of gore and graphic shame that comes with Christ's death. Christ's death on the cross is tantamount to or likened to, maybe in modern times, lethal injection or death by um, electric chair. You're on death row. You know it's coming. It's, it's that, that there, there is like beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are worthy of this death. That's the shame that Jesus was under. Though there was no sin in his life, and Pilate couldn't find any reason to execute him. Nevertheless, he had the edict given, crucify him, and he was to be crucified. And that was a shameful death. And he did it on your behalf and on mine. But that shame, though it was condescension down, it became his launching pad for exaltation up. And that's what we find here. Therefore, God highly exalted him. He was highly exalted in terms of the level of exaltation. It was highly. That word highly exalted is sort of hooper exaltation. That's, that's a Paul made up word. He made this word up for this occasion. And he's saying Christ is, and it's like he's writing along. He can't think of a word. And he says he was super exalted. He was exalted categorically higher than any other being. He made that word up. Jesus rose from the dead. He was with his disciples for 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. You remember the story? In Luke 24, he walked out to the edge of town at Bethany. And all of a sudden, uh, Luke 24, 50, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts 1, 9 is the same part of the story there where the disciples are looking on and the Shekinah cloud comes down and scoops Christ up. He's, he's fully man and fully God in flesh. And he's taken up in a graphic way where angels appear to the disciples and say, Behold, why are you looking at him as he ascends into heaven? He's going to return in the same way that he left. Acts 2, verses 32 and 33 is where Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And I love this summary. He says, Peter does, Jesus, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So he was raised, but then he ascended, and then he is coronated in heaven. Exalted. It's a soaring exaltation. Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, the brilliant moment on Sunday morning when Jesus came right through his grave clothes in the sacred body of his humiliation, glorious and radiant. Paul put it this way. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. You might turn over there in your Bibles if you, you'd like. Verse 20. Paul put it this way. I love it. It's just a sort of comprehensive statement about Christ's exaltation. 
says he, God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age or the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is a comprehensive statement saying that there isn't some sort of category of exaltation and, you know, there's sort of one through ten categories of exaltation and Jesus is number ten, he's the top of the pile. No, this is categorically different super exaltation where all other created beings, both in the angelic realms, down below in the demonic realms or on earth, there is no other ruler now or who would ever come that would come close, categorically close to being exalted in this way. It's not possible. It's not possible. Verse 9 again, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The idea of bestowing a name is something more significant than just giving a handle or giving sort of a name on a birth certificate. For the father to bestow a name meant for the father to bestow a title of honor upon his son. Name, in other words, throughout the Bible always speaks of the full description of all of who that being is. That's the significance of name here. It's a title. It's a significant description of all the full attributes of who Christ is. And he's bestowed a name. Now, what is the name? This is a bit controversial. And a lot of people will immediately look at verse 9 and say that the name has to be Jesus. It's the name that is above every name, right? Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It has to be Jesus. But I want to sort of explain things and and show you a different perspective than that. A lot of people in the church will sort of use the name Jesus as a magical two syllables to make things happen. Or they think that it happens because you speak the name Jesus into a situation. But actually... Saying the words Jesus is not any sort of magical thing that you can do. But when you speak the name Jesus, hopefully in your mind as a Christian, what you're doing is you're expressing by faith that you need Jesus Christ in your life or you need Jesus Christ in a particular moment. Jesus is the authoritative one, not the words that we speak, right? There's nothing magical as if we can pronounce some incantation and make something happen. Jesus is the authoritative one in our lives and we access him by faith. So the father here, I don't think, is establishing some significance on the word Jesus. The word Jesus or the name Jesus was given to him as he was a carpenter's son, right? In transliterated language today, it might be the same name as Joshua. It means salvation. And that's who Jesus was as the carpenter's son. But the father instead here is affirming that Jesus is God, or I should say it this way, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Look at verse 10 again. So that at the name of Jesus, 
What it's not saying here is the name is Jesus. It's saying Jesus is given a name. At the name that's given to Jesus. That's the way this should be read. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Look at verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, here's the name, is Lord. I would argue that the name that Paul is talking about here is the title Lord. That the Father is crowning the second member of the Trinity, who's Jesus Christ, Lord. Lord. In the Hebrew, that is the name that is given to God, that is Yahweh. You heard it taught on last week. This is the name that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and told Moses to say, tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you or Yahweh has sent you. Tell Pharaoh my name. My name is I am. That's what Yahweh means. I am the self-existent one. I'm the one who was, who is, and is to come. That's the significance of the, the name Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which in the New Testament is the word kurios, and that is the word for Lord and for Master. And that is who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is Lord. And what Paul is describing here is a great vindication because for Jesus to go down, down, down in humility, for him to leave the riches of heaven and take the form of a servant and ultimately be indicted wrongly and falsely as a criminal worthy of execution and that kind of bloody shame, for him to die in that way, in that disrespected, ignominious death, and then for him to do that meant... That the Father needed to exalt Christ and vindicate what he did in the sacrifice by saying, Jesus is Lord. Glory to God. And that's the theme of heaven. That's what this is talking about. He's highly exalted and there's a name that's bestowed upon him that makes him categorically different and greater and higher than any other created being. He's in a class all alone unto himself. He's Lord. Well, I want to look at verse 10 and show you what all of creation is going to do. And I should say all of those who are created who are volitional beings. I think Psalm 150 where it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord applies here. Everything that is thinking or rational will give glory to God. Believers, unbelievers, the angels in heaven, all of the classifications of angels in the angelic realms, and all of the demons, all of the unbelievers, they too will bow in submission to Jesus Christ. So at first we have the expression of glory that's coronation. The second expression of glory now is seen in submission. In submission. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Let's stop there. What does it mean for people to bow on the knee or to take a knee? What does it mean to yield to Christ in that way? You know, a lot of times in the Bible you see people praying to God, standing up, right? Jesus, he would break bread, he would raise his eyes up to heaven, and he would seek the Lord standing up. But at the Garden of Gethsemane, where was he? On his knees. 
on his knees in complete and total desperation before his father. That day of final coronation, that day of complete and full exaltation will be a day of desperation. It'll be a day of yielding. Now, for believers, it's a day of glad submission and joyful humility and yielding gladly and willingly before God, right? But we will be in awe of him. We will be in awe of Christ. And then on the other hand, there will be unbelievers who do not exalt Christ by faith, but they yield to Christ by force. Just think of it. Those who will be grinding their teeth in anger, in frustration, angry at God because they are condemned, but realizing that Christ is vindicated as the Lord of the universe. Remember James chapter 2, I believe it's verse 19. Even the demons believe and shudder. All will bow before the Lordship of Christ. The idea of the Lordship of Christ, by the way, spans the scripture. I just did a quick Bible work search this week on the word Lord. 7,776 hits. There's a lot that's building up to this culminating moment, this climactic moment of submission before Christ. Christ demands this universal posture. Every knee will bow. He also demands universal participation. Look at verse 10 again. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Three categories are given here of those who will submit. Angels who are in heaven, people who are on earth. What does it mean to be under the earth? It could be a reference to those who have already died, who are buried in the ground, and and they will too include this great congregation of submission, or under the earth could also be an expression of the underworld or the netherworld of the demonic realm that too will bow in submission. It encompasses everyone. Heavenly realms and earthly realms will all be there saying that Jesus is Lord. It reminds me of the categories at the first birth. I mentioned this earlier. Remember the angels? You have the angelic realm that we're saying glory to God in the highest. And you have the peasant sort of shepherds that are in the fields. And they're also joining in and worshiping God and going to see Jesus who was born, laid in a manger. And they're joining in. And then you have the magi who come who are basically kingmakers. They were Gentiles, people outside of Israel, representing how all of the world would be coming together, even multi in multiracial, or multiracial sense or multi-ethnicity, worshiping God, giving glory to his name. And that sort of also reminded me of Revelation 4 and 5, how before the throne of Christ, the lamb who became the lion... You have myriads upon myriads of angels and angelic beings and the four living creatures and an uncountable number of people who are gathering, saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive glory and honor and power. And they say it over and over and over again. And there's this uncountable amount of glory and worship that's going towards Christ. That's this scene. That's this exaltation. It's where heaven is Christ's throne and the earth is his footstool. Hebrews chapter 2 says that. Well, now we've seen it 
Christ's glory in terms of his coronation, in terms of submission. And now in verse 11, let's see Christ being glorified in terms of confession. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confession. When I read this, you know, I just wrestled with it. For a bit. Intuitively, when you read this, you, you can understand just right off the bat, all of rational creation is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But if you sort of think about it and ponder it for a bit, you might be tempted to think, you know, how is everybody going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and everybody doesn't sort of get into heaven? Because that is going to happen. All of rational creation is going to say this. Romans 10, 9 and 10, for instance, says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what happens? You will be saved. So does this mean everybody's going to get saved? There's another verse that jumped out at me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. It says, therefore, Paul saying, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? Does this mean everybody is in the Holy Spirit because they're confessing that Jesus is Lord? No. The context begs to differ in terms of that kind of thinking. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, by the way, where it's saying that no one says Jesus is a curse who's in the Spirit. That's talking... That's where Paul was talking to people who were involved in false worship and they were worshiping idols and they were intermingling Christianity with idolatrous demon worship. And he's saying, look, there are people who are saying Jesus is accursed and you're saying they're part of the spiritual club here? There's no way. You can't say Christ is cursed or Christ isn't fully all of who he said he was as God. And man, you can't do that and say that you're in the club. And so that's not by the Holy Spirit. That's not real worship. And on the other hand, when people are saying Jesus is Lord in the church, that is something that's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's talking about this on a deep heart level, and he's doing the same thing in Philippians 2. There are people who one day will say Jesus is Lord and will mean it by faith. And there are people who will be forced to say Jesus is the Lord And the Lord will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right? Matthew chapter 7. People say, look, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons. You know, I I said you were Lord. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. I didn't know you on a heart level. So let me say to you, please search your heart this morning. Think about whether or not you have yielded to Christ as Lord. Do you know him as Lord? Do you know him personally as the Lord over all of creation? He is comprehensively Lord of everything. Have you bowed and yielded submission to him on this side of eternity? Because one day you will bow, you will confess, but you want to do it by faith now so that you're not condemned later. Even the demons believe and shudder. They do believe. They, they have some kind of mental assent 
that Jesus is real and he's the second member of the Trinity and he's God, but they have not yielded on a heart level to follow him and they can't do that because they're condemned. They're outside of grace. Philippians 2.11 is actually reaching back to Isaiah 45 where God was talking to the Gentile nations in verse 22 and he said, turn to me and be saved. He was, he was speaking through Isaiah the prophet saying, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He was calling the nations to believe in him. And then in verse 23 he says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And he says, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so God, through Isaiah, was saying, nations, you need to come to me because I'm the true God, because one day, one day you will bow and you will confess. And Paul is saying the same thing here in Philippians 2. It centers on Christ, this confession does. They're confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. They're saying the name that the Father has bestowed on him, that he is the Lord. But notice what happens. When people are confessing Jesus as Lord, look at the end of verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. I love this effect that's going on in the throne room of heaven. It really reflects the reciprocal love relationship between the father and the son here you have the father who is crowning christ and then christ is being exalted but with the father's sort of crowning as the exaltation goes to christ it's also glorifying the father in a greater way than he ever could be glorified in the first place Because this is our God, a God who is loving within the Trinity and manifesting love back and forth between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're they're outdoing each other with love and glory and joy. And we're entering into that. And as we glorify the Son, it's splash effecting over onto the Father. As you read this, you could be tempted to ask, you know, is the Son supposed to be more glorious than heaven than the Father is? No, not at all. Jesus is not more glorious than the Father. The glory, in fact, reflects off of Christ onto the Father. And so the Trinity receives greatest glory in this way. 1 Corinthians 15 shows this. 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And in verse 24, it talks about how Christ will dominate the earth and deliver the kingdom to the Father. So you have a picture of the Son giving the kingdom to the Father. And then in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, The Father puts all things in subjection under Christ's feet. So again, you see this outdoing of each other in the Trinity in a love relationship. Let me ask this question again to you. Do you know this kind of God? This is Paul's God. That's who he's writing of. And this is my God. This is, this is God's word explaining God to you. A God who is sacrificial. A God who is a servant. A God who is love. A God who is indomitable. A God who is authoritative. A God who is overall. A God who is gloriously sharing glory amongst the Trinity. This is our God. Has this God affected your life? Are you someone who is self-sacrificial? 
someone who's loving, someone who's esteeming others higher than yourself, giving glory to people and, and enjoying the glory of God in that way. Do you know this kind of God? Or is this just a God of the storybooks and a God of tradition? Is God to you just the God of Christmas holiday or Easter? Is God to you just part of a sort of a warm sentiment that you enjoy seasonally? Or do you know God personally? Because you must. You must know God personally. You must bow in yielded submission now. Well, here's a few points of application. First of all, yielding to Christ and confessing that Jesus is Lord is inevitable. This is sort of by way of review. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's not if it happens. It's when. You will perhaps remember a sermon like this morning when it's happening. And you'll say, oh yeah, it's now. And glory to God, by God's grace, you will have believed before that point and placed your trust in Christ. Number two, because of grace, you still have opportunity to yield to and submit to Christ as a believer. The grace of God. Hearing about Christ's exaltation, you know what that is? It's grace. It's grace. This window into heaven and eternity is grace. Number three, genuinely having Christ is grasping his humility as well as his glory. You know, liberal religion will basically paint Christ as sort of this Jewish Gandhi who went around and did good things for people. And because he did good things for people, we should do good things for people. He was a nice guy. We should be a nice guy, right? He fed the poor, we should feed the poor. And it's true, Christ did walk this earth and was humble and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he took care of people's needs. He was that, he is that. But he's also super exalted. You gotta have the full picture to have Christ at all. Do you understand that? This is the God of the scripture, the one that we worship. He was tender, And he's glorious. Number four, if your spiritual pulse is weak, this is my counsel to you. Look into a passage like this one, Philippians 2, and start thinking about Christ who was exalted in heaven, who went down, down, down. Go down with Jesus in his humility. Think about it. Meditate upon what he did for you. Being born as a baby to a virgin suffering a death that was humiliating. Go down in his humiliation and then think about his resurrection and soar up, up, up with Christ in his exaltation. Work through this meditation. A summary verse is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Think about Christ in his richness. Think about Christ in his poverty. And think about what he won for you at the cross. And enjoy his exaltation. Because 
as believers, you too will be adopted into this glory, giving glory to Christ and enjoying the glory of God forever and ever. If you don't yet know him, please yield in your heart. Submit to Christ now. And I would ask you, I'm going to close in prayer now, pray in your heart to receive Christ even this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us a word this morning about your exaltation. Lord, we bow in yielded submission to you now. And I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would open their hearts, that you would open their eyes to be able to see you as more precious and more valuable and more gloriously, categorically higher than any other being. Jesus, you are Lord. You are an uncreated being who is God, who was, who is, and is to come. And I pray that you would enter into the lives of anyone who does not yet know you. If there's someone that doesn't know you, I pray that they would say, Lord, come into my life. I need you. I'm desperate without you, and I know that I have sinned and blasphemed your name. I have gone after a wicked way, and I've lived a sinful, licentious life that is unpleasing to you. I've been guilty of sin, and now I repent. I turn away from my sin and ask you to be the Lord of my life. You are my king. You are my savior. Because you were will, was willing to humble yourself and become obedient to death on the cross and die a sacrificial death that is the sufficient, perfect payment for my sins, I can walk free. And I pray, God, that you would make people free. That anyone who's prayed that prayer, I pray, would tell someone today that they are now following you, that they're, they're fed up with themselves, they're ready to, to stop trusting in themselves, to stop striving in their own strength and to release themselves into the arms of Jesus. I pray that they would not be able to keep quiet about that, but would tell others that they have come to Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, and I pray that you would transform people's hearts. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you are our King and our Savior and our God. We say it once and we'll say it again because God, you reign. We love you. We thank you for this morning in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.